You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. The National Women's Soccer League kicks off March 16th on ION. Out in front to Williams. It's a new Saturday night destination featuring the best players in the world. Takes a shot, she scores. See the full schedule and find where to watch at IONNWSL.com. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. Today, episode 148, The Murder of Jane McRae. Over the last few episodes, we went through how Burgoyne's army came down from Canada and took Fort Ticonderoga without even a fight. Many had called the fort the Gibraltar of North America because they considered it invincible. British and German forces then chased the Americans out to Fort Anne and Hubberton, where clashes once again left the British victorious and the Americans running for their lives. For the British, their plan seemed to be going amazingly well so far. When King George received word that Ticonderoga had fallen, he rushed to tell his wife, I have beat them, beat all the Americans. General Burgoyne became the toast of London promoted to lieutenant general, and offered the Order of the Bath. For many officials and others in London, the fall of Fort Ticonderoga was supposed to be the hardest part of the campaign. All that was left was the victory march to Albany and then linking up with New York City. For Burgoyne and his army in the field, though, there was still a long way to go. Through rough wilderness and with many unknowns about how the enemy would respond. Burgoyne began to realize just how much he was on his own. He had left about 10% of his force to occupy Fort Ticonderoga. He sent word to General Carleton in Canada to request an occupation force from Carleton's forces so that Burgoyne's Ticonderoga garrison could rejoin the main column in its march south. General Carleton, however, refused. He said he was under strict orders from Lord Germain to keep his Canadian force in Canada for the defense of Canada. Ticonderoga was in New York and would have to be defended by Burgoyne's forces. As Burgoyne moved south, he had to dispatch more of his soldiers to garrison places like Skeensborough, Fort Anne, Fort George, and other key locations between his army and Canada. The further his army marched south, the more of his soldiers had to be deployed and the longer the lines stretched. Even so, Burgoyne was optimistic. The capture of Ticonderoga would certainly be a blow to American morale. The Americans seemed to be scattering and deserting. Hopefully, Loyalist volunteers would turn out in greater numbers, as they had when Cornwallis took New Jersey a year earlier. Burgoyne's local Tory advisor, Philip Skeen, who happily recovered his home at Skeensboro, assured Burgoyne that the population of upstate New York supported the king by about five to one. Following the Battle of Hubberton, General Burgoyne halted the British advance as he regrouped his forces at Skeensboro. This was the bottom point where his larger ships would have to stop. Only smaller bateaux could navigate the creeks that flowed further south. Much of his army supplies, including most of the field artillery, were still at Fort Ticonderoga and needed to be brought down to the army before they could continue. Years later, 
Burgoyne would lament that he was under strict orders to travel down the Hudson Valley to Albany and then to New York City. He said that he would have much preferred to march into New England and link up with the British forces in Providence, Rhode Island. It could be, though, that this option seemed better in hindsight after what happened to the campaign. Burgoyne also considered the option of moving his army back up to Ticonderoga so that they could move down Lake George to Fort George. This would have allowed the army to have a shorter overland march to Fort Edward on the Hudson River, where the Americans were by this time, congregating and organizing their resistance. There was also already a road between Fort George and Fort Edward, unlike the miles of wilderness between Skeensboro and Fort Edward. But Burgoyne believed that moving his entire force back north to Ticonderoga to then move down Lake George would have meant too much backtracking. Instead, he prepared his army for the overland march from Skeensboro to Fort Edward. It would take him more than two weeks to reorganize his army and collect the necessary supplies before he left Skeensboro. Once the British began moving, the column would move sometimes only a mile each day as the soldiers had to cut a trail through the forest and drag cannons over mountains and across streams and swamps. During that same time, the American forces had scattered. General Philip Schuyler, who still had overall command of the theater for the Continentals, had already left Albany near the beginning of July to assume command at Fort Ticonderoga. When he received word that the fort had fallen, he directed the Americans to meet at Fort Edward, a small fort about 50 miles south of Fort Ticonderoga and about 23 miles south of the British forces at Skeensboro. It took General Sinclair nearly a week to get to Fort Edward with the 1,500 men who had escaped Fort Ticonderoga and stayed with the army during the march. This, when combined with Schuyler's army of nearly 2,500, created an army of almost 4,000. Even so, that was not nearly enough to challenge Burgoyne's army, estimated to be twice that size. Schuyler called on General Washington to send reinforcements. Washington, however, was still preparing to defend against whatever General Howe was going to do once he left New York City. He did not want to spare anyone. He only sent General Nixon from Peekskill with another 600 Continentals. Washington also sent Generals Benedict Arnold and Benjamin Lincoln in hopes that the popular New England officers would encourage militia volunteers to turn out. The loss of Ticonderoga, however, was a real blow to American morale. Desertion now became a major problem. More soldiers were leaving than were arriving. There was nowhere around Fort Edward to house all of the soldiers, and Schuyler had to deploy his units for miles around in the sparsely populated area, making it even more difficult to keep control of the men. On July 27th, General Schuyler wrote to Connecticut Governor Jonathan Trumbull, pleading for more troops. Schuyler noted that he had only about 2,700 Continental soldiers who were, quote, indifferently armed, ragged, and without blankets. One-third of them, he noted, were, quote, aged men, boys, or Negroes. The militia forces were fading even faster. Thousands of militia had answered the call, but by the time of Schuyler's July 27th letter, the general noted that of the Connecticut militia, all but seven officers and 11 men had deserted. 
only 200 of the 1,200 militia from Berkshire County, Massachusetts remained. Half of the 2,100 Albany militia who had accompanied Schuyler less than a month earlier had already abandoned the army. A mere 10 or 12 New Hampshire militiamen remained with the army around Fort Edward. When the newly promoted General John Glover arrived in early August with a small brigade of Continentals, he described the army as weak and shattered, with less than 3,000 men powerless to make a stand against an enemy advance. Probably the greatest source of concern for many locals was not the British or even the Germans. Those they feared most were the Indian allies. For several weeks, warriors had been all through the forest attacking remote homes and villages, killing and scalping anyone they found. Many American soldiers wanted to be home to protect their families from such attacks. For the British, these Indian allies assured them that no Americans would be able to sneak up on them through the woods and set up an ambush. It allowed the regulars to cut a path through the wilderness without fear of attack. By July 26th, General Burgoyne had reached Fort Anne, about 12 miles from the Americans at Fort Edward. That evening, an Indian scouting party returned to the fort with several scalps. One of them was the long, dark hair of a woman. Loyalists immediately recognized the scalp as that of Jane McRae, a young woman in her early 20s who was the fiancé of Lieutenant David Jones, an officer in the Loyalist militia. McRae had been born in New Jersey, but had been living with her brother on a farm near Saratoga for some time. Her brothers were in the Patriot militia, but as with divisions in many families, Jane was engaged to a Tory officer. The Joneses and McRae's had been neighbors in New Jersey. The Jones family remained loyalist, while the McRae's generally supported the Patriots. Jane, however, still wanted the man she had known all her life and was not going to be dissuaded by the ideological differences between their families. David Jones had fled to Quebec after being threatened for his Tory leanings. He had taken a commission in a Loyalist regiment and was now returning with Burgoyne's army to retake his home for king and country. Jane had traveled north to meet up with Burgoyne's army and reconnect with her fiancé. She had been staying at a cabin with an older woman named Sarah McNeil, who was a cousin of British General Simon Fraser. The apparent idea was that from there she would be able to get to the British Army and reconnect with the love of her life. That was her apparent reason for remaining in this dangerous territory and away from her patriot family. The actual events leading to her death are a matter of dispute. The generally accepted story is that earlier in the day, two Indians had raided a nearby cabin with the two women, McRae and McNeil. In other versions, McRae and McNeil were already on the road when the Indians captured them. The captors were Wyandot Indians from Canada who had joined with Burgoyne's invasion and were among the hundreds of Indians wreaking havoc all over the region. By other accounts, these were two Indian scouts that had been hired by Lieutenant Jones to retrieve his fiancée and bring her to camp for her own safety. The Indians, who did not speak English, captured both women and were in the process of bringing them back to the British camp. They got into some sort of argument. The details of the dispute are in question. 
By some accounts, it was over which of them would get to keep McRae for themselves. In other accounts, it was over which of them would collect a reward for taking her to the British camp. As the dispute got heated, one of the warriors shot and killed McRae. He then scalped her, stripped her, and by some accounts mutilated her body. The Indian accused of this act reported that she had been shot by Americans and that he simply took the scalp from her dead body. But it doesn't appear that anyone believed his story. Jane and Sarah had been separated at the time of Jane's death. One warrior had carried Jane away on his horse while Sarah had been forced to walk. This was not the first Indian massacre of innocents. Since the campaign had begun weeks earlier, reports from all over, as far north as the Canadian border, down to Albany, and even into western Massachusetts, Indian raids had struck, killing men, women, and children, while also burning and looting property. There were also stories of rape and torture. As bad as things got, they could have been worse. Most of the Indian raiders were a few hundred men from Canada, mostly members of the Ottawa, Wyandotte, and other Algonquin tribes. Thousands of Iroquois living in upstate New York remained neutral, mostly thanks to the efforts of Indian agents sent by the Continental Congress, and through negotiations with General Philip Schuyler. Most of the Iroquois who had joined the British were not out on their own, but were marching with Barry St. Ledger's army, a topic I will address in a couple of weeks. Two Iroquois tribes, the Oneida and Tuscarora, were part of the Iroquois Confederation, but supported the Patriots. So the raiding parties, as terrifying as they were, were usually a relatively small number and could be defensible if the locals were organized and prepared for them. This latest threat of Indian attacks had a long tradition going back through several wars when the French unleashed Indian allies on the colonial frontier. Older colonists had lived through these previous attacks, and the younger ones had heard the horror stories. Many frightened locals abandoned their homes and left for larger towns to stay with friends or family. In other cases, small communities all slept in one defensible home so that they could fight together if a night raid came. Farmers worked in fields with a gun strapped to their backs. Women were left with firearms and knew how to use them. Local towns built lookout towers and used guard dogs as early warning systems against raiders. What became known as the Wilderness War of 1777 totaled dozens, if not hundreds, of small raids and attacks. It's likely that Patriot Papers exaggerated some of the atrocities and their numbers, but there is no doubt that it was happening, and that Burgoyne knew about it and did nothing. The defenses that locals had organized were not just for Indians, of course. British and German foraging parties also had to secure food, since supply lines back to Canada were becoming increasingly long and difficult. Many locals hid their food and prepared to defend whatever they had. Some foraging parties not only came back empty, but with wagons full of casualties, the result of firefights with locals. The region was both armed and hostile to the invading army. And this meant that Burgoyne relied on his Indian allies to keep the locals from organizing against the British. Burgoyne could also pay for desperately needed horses and other items of value that Indian raiders brought back to camp. 
Burgoyne had lectured the native warriors, fighting with his army to avoid killing women and children, and especially not to kill loyalist allies in the region. By British accounts, the Indians had largely shown restraint, with only a few isolated incidences. Likely, British officers ignored the occasional violations of orders against the massacre of civilians. But the murder of a beautiful young woman, Jane McRae, who was the fiancé of one of their own officers, was too much to ignore. Burgoyne held an inquest into McRae's murder. The British determined that the Wyandotte had murdered McRae and that he should be punished accordingly. Burgoyne summoned the chiefs and ordered that the murderer be given up for punishment. After considerable discussion, Indian agents warned that punishing the killer would result in a mass desertion of Indians. In the end, Burgoyne relented on trying to punish the killer. Instead, he ordered that a British officer accompany all raiding parties going forward. Despite not punishing the warrior, the natives responded to the incident with a common response. Oh yeah? Well, screw you guys, I'm going home! Over the next couple of days, most of the native allies deserted the army and returned to Canada. Most of them already had more booty than they could carry. Additional restrictions and other limitations on their movements meant that this was a good time as any to call it quits and return home for the year. In addition, several Loyalist officers, including McRae's fiance, also attempted to resign their commissions, and when refused, also deserted. McRae's death also became a rallying cry for the Americans. Newspapers up and down the continent carried exaggerated stories about her death. It played into the story that the British were unleashing what they called savages who were killing anyone, Loyalist and Patriot alike, as part of the British plan to crush the spirit of the people. American General Horatio Gates would later write a letter to Burgoyne complaining about her murder, to which Burgoyne responded. The letters were published across the continent in newspapers, spreading the story of how the British unleashed savages on the Americans, killing anyone who fell into their hands. While some of these stories were certainly one-sided and often exaggerated, they had the intended effect of increasing public support against the British invaders. Meanwhile, locals began hunting down Tories and native warriors in the woods and shooting them down. For years afterward, people would find these bodies left to rot where they fell. In some cases, the killers left a note attached to the body saying something to the effect of, in memory of Jane McRae. About this same time, Burgoyne finally received word from General Howe in New York City. Burgoyne expected some of Howe's army to be pushing up the Hudson Valley to meet up with Burgoyne. Instead, Howe informed Burgoyne that he intended to take his army south to capture Philadelphia. Howe expected Burgoyne to defeat the Americans in New York on his own. Despite the loss of his Indian allies, and despite the fact that Howe had apparently abandoned the Northern Army to fight on its own, Burgoyne pushed forward. The British found that the Americans had felled large trees, redirected creeks and rivers to make the route even more difficult. But such measures were only slowing the British progress. They could not stop it. The British had to build about 40 bridges, clear hundreds of trees, 
as well as rotting corpses of dead horses and oxen left in their path by the Americans. Flooded forests left them with little good land to camp during the night. As food became harder to obtain, smaller rations led to hunger. Scurvy, dysentery, and other diseases began to take their toll on the army. Mosquitoes and other biting insects were a constant nuisance for the men both day and night. By July 29th, Fraser's advance force reached Fort Edward, or at least the burned-out remains of where Fort Edward once stood. The Americans had completely destroyed the fort before abandoning it. They were camped about four miles further south at a place called Moses Kill. The British confirmed the American position, but were in no position to attack until they had consolidated their forces and had time to rest. The British had reached the Hudson River and planned to continue downriver toward Albany and eventually New York City. That was the goal, anyway. But reaching the river did not make marching any easier. The British could not carry their ships from Lake Champlain. They would still have to march through hostile land that was mostly wilderness. General Burgoyne found himself in a situation that should have been more of a concern. He was mostly cut off from his supply lines. General Howe had abandoned him. He had lost most of his Indian auxiliaries, and he had failed to recruit many loyalists along the way. He faced another 50 miles of wilderness marching before he reached Albany. He had failed to capture significant prisoners or discourage the growing militia armies preparing to meet him. Despite these concerns, Burgoyne believed that his mission was a success so far. His army was advancing, and the rebels had shown no ability to stop him. He would continue his advance toward Albany. Next week, a young and idealistic teenager arrives from France to participate in the American cause, the Marquis de Lafayette. Podcasters like Mike never know who will be inspired by their message. I'm Tracy Lawson, an author and historian. I once heard a podcaster comment, we rarely see history from a woman's point of view, and decided, hey, I'm a writer. I should do something about that. So I did. My novel, Answering Liberty's Call, Anna Stone's Daring Ride to Valley Forge, is based on a true story about my sixth great-grandmother and has been called a grand and rollicking revolutionary adventure. While on a solo horseback journey to Valley Forge with supplies for her soldier husband, Anna takes on the responsibility of delivering an urgent message to General Washington. But it's not long before a mysterious man is hot on her trail and trying to steal the letter. Can Anna outwit him and make it safely to the picket line? A version of Anna's story for elementary school kids called Revolutionary Anna is the first book in my Liberty Bells series for young readers. Liberty Bell's books feature female patriots who advanced the cause of liberty, and they're a great way to get kids hyped up about America 250, which is just around the corner. My books are available in print and ebook on Amazon. For listeners of the American Revolution podcast, I'm offering 15% off personalized signed copies of books ordered through my website, tracylawsonbooks.com. That's T-R-A-C-Y-L-A-W-S-O-N books.com. Use the promo code AMREVPODCAST. Hi, thanks for joining the American Revolution Podcast After Show. I'm pleased to announce that Trey Nance, a longtime 
Robert Morris Circle supporter, has opted to upgrade his support to the new Alexander Hamilton Club on Patreon. Trey has shown a real dedication to supporting this podcast, and I truly appreciate that. Also, thanks this week to Lucas Wilder, host of Have History Will Travel on YouTube, for his support of this week's episode. You should check out Lucas's channel on YouTube and subscribe. It's got a lot of interesting stuff. My big news this week is that the podcast recently exceeded 1 million downloads. Although I'm recording this a week in advance, a few days before this recording, I reached my 1 millionth download. I can't let that milestone pass without commenting on it. When I first started this podcast less than three years ago, I really had no expectations for it. It was mostly just a way for me to talk about a topic that interested me at a time when my friends and family were not interested in listening to me drone on for hours about the era with no end in sight. I figured, why not record my thoughts? Perhaps I would find a few dozen other people who shared my passion for the revolution. Well, clearly my expectations were exceeded. While keeping up the pace of putting out an episode every single week for the last 148 weeks straight has been a bit overwhelming at times, it really is the enthusiasm of you guys who listen who give me the motivation to keep up that pace. Anyway, we're not even halfway through the war yet. Let's hope we don't need to wait another three years for the next million. This week's focus was the murder of Jane McRae. The PR nightmare for the British blew up as she became an example of the horrors that Britain was unleashing upon its subjects. In the end, it led General Burgoyne, losing most of his native auxiliaries, and began to turn the tide against him. The importance of the Native American warriors to the Saratoga campaign, I think, is one that is generally acknowledged but does not receive very much coverage in most books about the campaign. Jane McRae's death went a long way toward removing that valuable asset from the British inventory. My book recommendation this week takes a much closer look at the role of Native Americans in New York during this era. It is called The Divided Ground, Indians, Settlers, and the Northern Borderland of the American Revolution by Alan Taylor. Now, this book takes a broader view of the relationships between the settlers and the natives. I have to admit, it's not about Jane McRae, and I don't think it even mentions the incident. The book covers native-settler relations both during the war and after the war itself. And that time after the war becomes an interesting topic in and of itself. The U.S. Army gets its first real military challenge in those wars with upstate New York Native Americans, which take place during President Washington's administration. The book, first published in 2006, is a little over 400 pages, not counting notes and index, which are pretty extensive and add another 150 pages. But the book is incredibly well-researched and well-written. The author, Alan Taylor, is a history professor at the University of Virginia. He's written at least 10 books on early American history, a couple of which have won Pulitzers. This book, Divided Ground, won the Cox Book Prize, which is awarded by the Society of Cincinnati. If you want to read more about the larger context 
of the relations between American settlers and the northern tribes, Taylor's book, Divided Ground, is a great resource. My online recommendation this week is an ebook called The Life of Jane McRae, with an account of Burgoyne's expedition in 1777, by David Wilson. Now, this is a pretty old book, first published in 1853. It's also rather short, less than 150 pages. It does cover, though, what is known about McRae and her fiancé, David Jones, as well as the incident surrounding her death. If you want to know more about McRae specifically, this is a good resource. As always, you can search for The Life of Jane McRae on archive.org or use the direct link on my website at amrevpodcast.com. And again, if you're looking on my website weeks after this has been published, go into the list I have published of former online recommendations of the week and look up the recommendation for the week of May 10th, 2020. Well, that's all for this week. I hope you will join me again next week for another American Revolution podcast. What does Sputnik have to do with student loans? How did a set of trembling hands end the Soviet Union? How did inflation kill moon bases? And how did a former president decide to run for a second non-consecutive term? These are among the topics we deal with on the My History Can Beat Up Your Politics podcast. We tell stories of history that relate to today's news events. Give a listen. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics wherever you get podcasts.